in 2011, there was the case of David Smith. You know, David Smith was killed nearly in exactly the same way that George Floyd was. And I learned that this was a bad police department, and I meant it. This is pattern and practice, means Minneapolis Police Department officers are more likely to search black individuals. Welcome back to Parallel Justice, the podcast that dives into the crimes and cases that have dominated the national headlines through exclusive interviews with the very attorneys who fought the cases. Some of the discussion you hear today may be controversial. However, we know that silence, especially on tough issues, only enables and encourages wrongdoers. It's our goal to bring these issues to light so that we may have meaningful discourse around them. The views expressed in this podcast are those of our guests, who are experts in these areas. Their opinions are invaluable, however, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. The topics we discuss may be disturbing, and they are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering, and we encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. I'm Renee Williams, Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime, and your guide through this conversation. Now, let's start the show. Today, we are continuing our conversation with Chicago attorney Tony Romanucci of Romanucci and Blandin. And I want to get right into it with the idea that victims of police brutality are victims of crime. You know, at the National Center, we've done a lot of work around this, and we've conducted quite a few interviews of young Black men who were not only victims of crime, but then became victims of police brutality. And when we spoke to them, they frankly said they had no idea that they were even a victim and they had no idea that services were even available to them. That is a very good point. That is a very good point because when you're talking about the constitution, you know, unfortunately it takes somebody who's had some training to understand Who knows that if somebody points a gun at you, that your rights have been violated, that your constitutional rights have been violated? Who would know that if you're if if you're stopped and frisked, that you're going to that that that's a violation of your constitutional rights? So, you know, Renee, let let me let me just say this. and, and, And this goes right to the heart of your point. And that's why I'm saying that what we only know what's been reported, you know, here in Chicago. Um, I'm, I'm involved in, in litigation against the city, which is um, the rulings have gone in our favor on exactly that point on stop and frisk. In Chicago, between the years 2011 and 2015, two million black men were unconstitutionally stopped on the street and frisked. And I want you to guess how many of those 2 million people were arrested for any violation. Zero, and I would guess it was under 100 reports. Did I ruin your punchline? Well, you did, because you, you exactly, zero out of 2 million were arrested. Because they were, they were basically catches and release. They were stop and frisk. None of them were arrested. And if you heard what I said, two million black men were stopped. Well, I can tell you, Chicago by population has about between three and four hundred thousand black men. So now you can see how many repeats, mm-hmm. how many times they were repeatedly stopped and frisked. 
And it wasn't until somebody came forward and told us about this that we started investigating and we found out this this egregious conduct of the Chicago Police Department. And and that's how it starts. So these other 1,999,999 men didn't know that their rights were being violated. Did they even know to come forward? Or is there any type of complaint process within the Chicago PD where they could say, I think my rights have been violated? Well, that happened after we filed our, our class action lawsuit. So after we filed our class action lawsuit, then people came forward saying, yes, that happened to me. It happened to me. It happened to me. Oh, it happened to me five times. It happened to me 10 times. It happened to me once. It happened to kids. You know, we, we have we have so many kids who are part of this class action because they were riding their bike and they were just, you know, because they were, you know, riding bike while black uh, were stopped. Going Back to the civil case um, of the Floyd family, what was the basis of your case against the police department in Minneapolis? And so, how much more did you learn during the course of litigation? Because it never went to trial. No, no. And, and that's and that's one of the things that, you know, obviously it was it was good for the family that the case was able to settle because you know, a trial is a very emotional process. But if there was ever a case that there would have been the desire to try, it would have been that one in order to expose the Minneapolis Police Department and and show, you know, how bad they were. Because I've, I've said it before, and I'll say it now, the Minneapolis Police Department needs a complete do-over. Like if, if they were in a laundry basket, you know, just pick up the laundry basket tip it over, let everything fall out, and then, you know, fill it back up again with nicely folded, clean clothes. That's how bad the Minneapolis Police Department is. Um, they just, they have not shown themselves to be uh, corrigible. They are incorrigible, if anything. Let's talk about so that. You, yeah. The Minnesota Department of Human Rights 2022 report. Um, just going through the table of contents, I mean, my God, it's disturbing. Where do they go from here? What, what was, if you can discuss the findings of that report and how do they start to change? Well, here, Renee, you, you're right. If, if, if somebody just wanted to read the table of contents, um, Harris would start standing on end and there are so many egregious violations of constitutional rights that the Minneapolis, I'm sorry, the Minnesota Department of Human Rights found that they're way too, too numerous to even go through in this short podcast that we have. But let me just talk about one. Maybe we can talk about more than one. Let's talk about the one where people would be shocked and probably saying, what? what, what did you just say? How about the one where Minneapolis Police Department officers used covert social media accounts to pose as community members to criticize elected officials? Minneapolis Police Department used covert social media accounts to conduct surveillance unrelated to any criminal activity 
and to falsely engage with black individuals, black leaders, and black organizations. It, it's it's really, really just incredible. Now, that's not saying that they didn't find other examples of pattern and practice that violated constitutional rights. Of course, they were found to have inappropriately used neck restraints and chemical irritants on people. So mind, what I'm just telling you right now is that not only would they use neck restraints like they would on George Floyd, this is pattern and practice means over and over again is what pattern and practice means. They would just do this over and over. They would use chemical irritants. So pepper spray. So if you weren't complying for any reason, they would pepper spray you. Um, they, they found that Black people suffered from higher rates of severe use of force. Not even just use of force. We're talking severe use of force. That Minneapolis Police Department officers are more likely to search Black individuals, just like what I was talking about on stop and frisk and even in, in, in vehicular stops. So that's why, you know, you and I can talk right now with so much validation about the Minneapolis Police Department. Because when I was speaking about the Minneapolis Police Department before April of this year, I would talk about all the things that I knew about them, like what you're, what you're suggesting, what did I learn? And I learned that this was a bad police department, and I meant it, and I used to say it before April of 2022. This police department needed a do-over. When this, mini, when this Minnesota Department of Human Rights report came out, well, everything that I had been saying was actually true. So now I have the paper that says that Minneapolis Police Department needs a do-over. And certainly they're going to come under consent decree very soon. So I want to go back to that table of contents and talk about the training, because there's a whole headline MPD provides deficient training and guidance for its officers, which exacerbates a pattern of discriminatory race-based policing. And there are four, five points under that. Some of them are about unquestionable compliance and aggression versus insufficient supervisor training, reinforcing a culture that is adverse to oversight and accountability. Those are a lot of big words. Um, basically, what does that mean? We talked a little bit about killology, but how are these police being trained? And are there efforts to counter that training? Yeah, very good point. So here's here's how police departments kind of get around. This is how they say, oh, but we trained on this. We did this. Here's here's what they do. It, it, it's very it's it's very um, I don't want to call it sneaky, but it's tricky. So what they do is they let's say that, OK, it's time for a new policy. Okay, you got this bright, this bright, shiny new policy now. And what they'll do is they'll stick it in their general orders, but never train on it. So they've checked off a box is what they've done. They've, they've, they've filled in the box. They've complied with this bright, shiny new policy, but then they don't train on it. So when, when the incident comes up again where the policy should take effect, it doesn't because they haven't been trained on it and and the bad behavior continues over and over again and so 
you know, I know that you and I have talked about it before. In 2011, there was the case of David Smith. You know, David Smith was killed nearly in exactly the same way that George Floyd was. So after David Smith was killed in, in, in Minneapolis in 2011, the, Minneapolis, the, the Minnesota Police Department undertook a number of reforms to fix that. But what they did was they created this, this training video and they stuck it in their modules and they said that, well, now we train on them, but they never trained. They just left it up to the officers to watch the new training video on their own. And so what happens is that the bad behavior continues. When that bad behavior happens over and over again, the pattern and practice that we talked about, civil lawyers call that a Monell violation, M-O-N-E-L-L. And Monell is, is, is named after a case where um, I believe it was the New York Supreme Court made the determination that when a municipality engages in pattern and practice, the municipality can be sued for a constitutional violation. And so that's what we were attempting to do in the George Floyd case. We were going to sue under Monell, under pattern and practice, because this behavior we knew was going on for years and years. And we already knew that they were trying to fix the behavior, but never did. And that was the basis of our civil lawsuit. Well, and this goes back to something you said earlier. If you're teaching killology, if you're teaching warrior mindset, you can't undo the muscle memory that you've built in by simply offering an hour of video training of how to do community-centered policing. No, you don't deprogram officers on killology just by showing them a fluffy new video that this is how you do it, as opposed to this is how you did it. How prevalent is this kind of new style of police training that we're going to have to combat now? Well, here, I mean, the, the, the problem that I see is this, is that this is really a generational issue. It's going to take a generation, at least one and a half turns in the police department in order to rid this sort of behavior. So like in Chicago, you know, if you've got a 20 year veteran on the police force, he's probably going to default or she will default to, you know, the typical stop and frisk that violates someone's rights. If you start training new police officers and those new police officers eventually train other police officers on the right style of policing so that it doesn't violate constitutional rights, that's when you're going to have change. But I think it's going to take a while because it's, it's hard to deprogram this whole issue. And, and, and you know, Renee, it's hard, it's hard not to talk about especially something like stop and frisk because there are cries right now across the country to bring back stop and frisk. You, you, are, you are hearing not only police departments, but citizens saying, bring back stop and frisk. And I cannot emphasize the danger that that's going to cause by bringing back uh, a, a behavior that violates constitutional rights hundreds of thousand times per day, possibly. There's been a lot of chatter 
in the media and and especially on social media as to whether Derek Chauvin was able to get an impanel, whether he was able to impanel an impartial jury directly as a result of the settlement you reached and the timing of that settlement and the general media around the announcement. What do you have to say to that? Oh, yeah, we took a lot of flack for that. But um, I will tell you this, that was a coincidence. We had been negotiating with, um, you know, the Minnesota Corporation Council's office, their city attorney, the city council. There had been discussions going on for quite a while, for months and months. And I got to tell you, at one point, those negotiations completely broke down. There was... um, very little hope and then they were resurrected and when they were resurrected it kind of happened pretty quickly now whether or not minnesota or minneapolis wanted any coincidence with the criminal trial i have no comment on that but certainly um our our legal team you know ben crump myself jeff storms we did not uh wish to impact you know the the criminal trial because i gotta tell you we were worried very much about that criminal trial i've i've said this before the black community does not trust our 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 judicial system even with that video they were concerned that derek chauvin could be found not guilty and so the last thing that we wanted to do was feed into that saying oh well hold on the the floyd family got justice that's okay we can let derek chauvin go you know we can let him pass on this one so we had very high concern about that so we certainly did not want to conflict with the criminal trial we wanted justice not only administratively but but criminally and civilly too we wanted all three wheels of justice against, you know, Derek Chauvin. So, yeah, the, the timing was 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 maybe, you know, in retrospect, not the best. But I will tell you that given the video and what I know about the video and jurors' reactions from across the country, because we, we focused and mocked this case all over the country to get very many different reactions. And... Um, the video spoke for itself. It's rare to be able to have a civil attorney sit with you throughout a criminal case. How important do you think that was for the Floyd family? And how important is it for victims everywhere? It was so important for the Floyd family. I mean, they were so committed to this process. And, you know, I got to tell you, Keith Ellison and his team, um, you know, Matt Frank, they were they were terrific throughout the process. They were really really uh, invested not only in the trial but also the family. But they're on trial, right? And so the Floyd family needed um, emotional support throughout this case because I've, I've I've pointed out on numerous occasions the Floyd family never really had a time to grieve. The moment that George was murdered, they were thrust into a worldwide spotlight. And then they embraced that spotlight, not because of notoriety, but because they wanted to make change. So they traveled the country 
um, supporting other victims who had been killed by police. And they were part of rallies. They were part of congressional hearings. They were part of state hearings. They were, you know, interviewed hundreds of times. And they never had a time to grieve. So having us be with them was the the least that we could do to provide that emotional comfort uh, that they required. Um, or else, you know, it's just not healthy. It's just not healthy. And and I, once the criminal trial was over because we had settled the civil case, I really told them, I said, I pray that you guys, that you all can, can now grieve, you know, and feel, you know, the loss that you had because you haven't had a chance to yet. And so we're about to wrap up, but I want to close with that, which is similar to how we started. How is the family doing now? So they're doing, you know, as well as can be. You know, we stay in touch with them all the time, and they have not taken their foot off the gas. Uh, when there's an injustice in this country, um, I know I'm going to see them there. I don't have to. I don't have to call them. I don't have to ask them. They will be there. Um, they've been with me in North Carolina. They've been with me in Texas. They've been with me in Las Vegas. Um, where there's injustice, the Floyd family will be there and support those victims. They will support the cause. They will they will speak out for injustice. And, you know, we have to be very thankful and grateful to them that they are willing to continue to do that because it's a resource. And not everybody's willing to commit their time to it, but they are. And before we close, I just want to make sure that you have a moment to say whatever you want. Give a last two minutes of final thoughts. What I experienced, you know, with George Floyd was something that I don't know that I'll experience again. And I've been asked the question, you know, how did you prepare for George Floyd? And I said, I've been preparing my whole lifetime and my whole career for George Floyd. But I just never knew that a George Floyd would happen. But when it did happen, and I was asked to join that team, I knew what to do. And that's because I'd been preparing my whole life for that. And that's why we were able to create history with the settlement because of that lifetime of preparation. And for me, it was starting out in the public defender's office when I was 23 years old here in Cook County and understanding you know the vagrancies of the lies that police officers would tell in order to justify the arrests and get people off the street that didn't deserve to be taken off the street but to satisfy a numbers game instead and and it was those early injustices that led me to uh, believe in what people had to say as opposed to dismiss what they had to say uh, because a lot of people don't believe that what police can do. And so for me, you know, the, the Floyd case was, was, was a great honor. And, and from there, you know, it's taught me a lesson too that I can't take my foot off the brake either, that I have to continue to do whatever it takes. And I will in order to stop bad policing. 
And having said that, we know that the bad police constitute a very small percentage um, of entire police departments, but they are the ones who bring the notoriety to policing and the ones that people hang their hats on when they think of police. So hats off to the good police. Hats off to the ones who do care about the community and the citizens um, that they patrol. Uh, but to the ones who do no good, it's, it's time to have you removed and replace you with the ones who want to do good. And I think that is a wonderful place to stop. Tony, I cannot thank you enough for joining us for this conversation and for all of the work you do uh, for our communities and to keep our communities safe every day. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us for this conversation. If you have any questions about your rights after listening, please visit us at victimsofcrime.org and Tony's information is also available in the show notes. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association. More information is available at victimsofcrime.org and victimbar.org.